Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, November the 26th, 2023. And judging from the headlines in the world's leading newspapers today, the world might be slightly disordered, less disordered than it was last week or over the last month. Certainly all the headlines from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to the Washington Post to the BBC all talk about the peace deal, if not a peace deal, a hostage deal between Hamas and the Israelis, uh, uh, a ceasefire or at least a short ceasefire, a pause, uh, and perhaps a little more hope of peace. One man who has given a great deal of thought to disorder and order in the Middle East uh, is Jason Pack. He's been on the show a couple of times before, back in October, beginning of October, he was one of the few optimists believing that there may be peace for the taking after the Hamas attack in Gaza, uh, although he still believes in the reality of uh, the disorder uh, of our new world, uh, Disorder, and he, of course, is the host of the excellent podcast, uh, Disorder. He's joining us from his home in London. Um, Jason, is there more or less disorder or order today in in, uh, in the last Sunday in November than there was uh, over the last few weeks? Or am I being over-optimistic? Well, it's always a pleasure to be chatting about the fundamental nature of the global system with you, Andrew. I think that you might be onto something, which is that the recent hostage release deal and the temporary truce that accompanies it showcase that certain actors have a desire in a more ordered international system, even if they're on opposite or different sides. And in, in this case, you know, the Qataris delivered the goods. Hamas doesn't want an ordered international system, but the Qataris do. So even though they're willing to work with Sunni Islamist and Muslim Brotherhood aligned groups like Hamas, they want an ordered international system where this war doesn't spiral out of control. And, you know, good on them. And they would like to see Iran more contained. So I was very encouraged by the fact that the Qataris had a delegation of diplomats actually going to Israel and having meetings in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem just yesterday, Saturday. And yeah, that's never right happened before. Yeah. Um, and we talked about this last time you were on the show. The thing that I'm not convinced with is, is there anything different about this crisis? Everyone said, oh, this is the, the worst outrage, blah, 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 since the Second World War. But it doesn't strike me as anything particularly different. Maybe the scale is different. But basically, there's a quote-unquote terrorist act, an act of resistance. The Israelis respond. And then what is determined within the international community is how far the Israelis can go. And in the end, there is an end to the hostilities. Is there anything different about what's happened over the last few weeks? Well, I think you're right that the dynamics you portrayed are similar to the 2014 and the 2006 Hezbollah-Israel war, but that there is a difference 
not only in extent, but in kind, because the breaching of the Gaza envelope, overwhelming the technological, you know, aerial defenses of Israel, and then having this rampage that was more like a pogrom than like a, you know, uh, act of war is quite different than what has happened previously. And therefore the extent to which the Israelis have been given a long leash to quote unquote, try to eliminate Hamas in Gaza is also different in kind as well as an extent to what has happened previously. I'm hoping that that can be used to get us to a real discussion about medium term solutions and administering a kind of order that is going to require regional powers to be on the same page. But if, if we fail to have that, then it will end up that this is no different than what has happened previously, exactly as you've said. Do you think that Hamas knows what it's doing? Did it know what it was doing in terms of this outrage, um, what you call a, a pogrom, whatever that means, um, in, 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 uh, in Israel? Did it expect the outrage and the response? I mean, it was unavoidable for the Israelis. So they were forcing the Israelis' hands, weren't they? Well, on the one hand, I think it's impossible for me to empathize or think like a psychopathic terrorist organization. I'm not asking you to empathize. And on the other hand... That wasn't the question. I was asking... And on the other hand, I think, Andrew, that we can intuit a certain strategic logic. Exactly as you pointed out, they wanted to goad the Israelis into what's sometimes called the 9-11 trap, which is by doing a certain kind of provocative outrage, you cause an overreaction. And that's why I hold the controversial opinion that Hamas has already militarily succeeded. And any time that they feel that they're on the verge of losing their military success, they can be like, what do you know? We're willing to give some more hostages, so we need a ceasefire to resupply. I don't see it as possible to militarily defeat Hamas. And what's driving the Israelis to seize fire, at least in the short term, because it clearly is not in their military interest. So this is a great question. And in preparation for tonight's show, I called an Israeli army reservist friend of mine who is fighting and knows a lot of what's happening. And he said, you know, Jason, I just have to be straight with you. We didn't get what we wanted to get in terms of the tunnels or at Shifa Hospital or really proving where the Hamas control centers are. What we've done is we've tried to reestablish deterrence. And I think that's the key thing. They so were humiliated by the security failure on October 7th, not only to their own citizens, but in the eyes of Iran and Hezbollah and others, that they've been reestablishing deterrence. And that's been somewhat successful. But they never got a gotcha moment. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone was hoping when Bush went into Iraq that they were going to get the uranium. And every Israeli commander is hoping they're going to be going in Gaza and be like, aha, here's the tunnel that shows the whatever, and we've got it. And they haven't really, they haven't had a gotcha moment. Well, even if they'd have had, you're using this term gotcha moment, even if they'd proved that Hamas was using a hospital or a school, so what? But does that, uh, I mean, so, so it, it's not a gotcha moment in terms of, um, in terms of the, the broader problem, the broader disordered problem that you, that you 
touch on in your work Correct. that captures Correct. It's not about the moment for that because I don't think the Israelis have any strategic thought here at all. They're led by a right-wing, disordering, neo-populist Netanyahu government, which empowers the extreme right, like Ben Gavir and Smotrich, who are very happy to disorder Israeli society with their proposed constitutional judicial reforms, as well as to disorder Israel's immediate environment. So they don't have any strategy. They are kind of Trumpian in their uh, desire to radicalize. But isn't Trumpianism, if if that's the right word, isn't that the new reality of our disordered world? You can find it, obviously, with Trump, but all over the world, from Netanyahu to Hamas to Putin, that that's, that's the new reality, for better or worse. For way. sure. And we're talking on a Sunday where Gert Wilders, the longtime right. Dutch neo-populist who's been in, you know, he's been campaigning for 20-ish years. He's like an established force of the Islamophobic neo-populist right. He won a plurality at the most recent Dutch election. And in Argentina, we have another neo-populist leader who I understand less well because the context is a little far afield for me. But you're asking, does the world look more ordered or more disordered? Looking at the Netherlands and Argentina, more disordered. But I have a tiny glimmering of hope, which is that there are these players like the Qataris who, if we learn how to work with them and we can unify other American allies, well, you can snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat and try to create some kind of international solution, not only for the post-war governance of Gaza, but for a new regional order whereby the orderers are working together against disordering elements like Hamas and Iran. We are speaking with Jason Pack, who I love talking to, the co-host of the Disorder podcast, a man who spent his life studying Libya, North Africa, the Middle East, and has taken those lessons and building, I think, a very coherent and interesting view of of what he calls our our new disordered world. Um, Jason, I have to admit, I'm not particularly encouraged with the Qataris. You note that they arrived in Israel via private jet. Maybe that speaks to the reality of the Abraham Accords or or, or something else. But the Qataris run a a neo-slave economy. We know that from the World Cup. Why should we be in any way encouraged by the Qataris? Why is Qatar better than Iran or even Putin's Russia? I'm sorry. Uh, I need to push back against this. I understand the argument, well, why is Qatar better than the Emirates? Because they're similar in many ways and they do have a kind of indentured servitude economy and they have a huge amount of resource wealth that they have used to destabilize uh, some post-Arab Spring states, but they're a lot better than Iran. I mean, there's freedom for their populace who are their citizens. They have scholarships for people to study abroad. They're a part of the, you know, generative economy using uh, the kind of technological stuff that you always have people talking about AI and that other stuff on your pod. Um, But what I'm getting at is that the Qataris seem to want order. They're willing to use their political capital to decrease humanitarian suffering on both the Israeli and the Palestinian sides and to try to contain Iran. One of the things that the Qataris are doing is that they're moving away from Iran and away from disordering. And Anyone who wants to have a black and white, oh, well, they're horrible because they have some kind of indentured servitude or because they 
host the Hamas political leadership is missing the nuance here. Since the death of, excuse me, since the the abdication of the old emir in 2013, they've been moving closer and closer to playing this important mediating and ordering role in the Middle East. And I think that that's to be applauded. And you, you can't just focus on the human rights stuff and, and the World Cup. You're, otherwise, you're missing the big picture. Is there another interpretation, Jason, that the Iranians are a little bit more reasonable than than the way they're presented in the Western media, particularly the American media, given the fact that of all the Gulf states, Qatar seems the closest to Iran. There are all sorts of Gulf rivalries, the Saudi-Qatari Emirates rivalries of one kind or another, religious, cultural, geopolitical. Uh, do you believe, I mean, what's your interpretation of what the Iranians want out of all this? They don't want war any more than anyone else, do they? Um, not sure about that, but there's a lot to unpack in your question. The Qataris are inherently the closest to the Iranians because geographically, Qatar is a peninsula in the northern part of the Arabian Gulf, frequently called in English the Persian Gulf, which juts towards Iran. Ergo, the Qataris share an important gas field with Iran. So they have a structural reason to need to work with the Iranians. But what we've seen is they're willing to use this connection to Iran and connection to Hamas and connection to the Taliban to mediate win-win solutions. And I guess what I am as an orderer is I believe in compromises. So even with the Russians, we can work together on the Arctic or on some climate change issues. I don't want to work with Putin on Ukraine issues. I want to defeat him there. But I believe that we need to work with him on climate change because there's only one world. And the Iranians are a part of this world. So we need to work with them on certain issues. And the Qataris are part of a conduit that we can work with the Iranians as much as possible. But the Iranians are, you know, quite destabilizing. And whether or not they had direct knowledge of this attack, they have been cheerleading it ever since it has happened. And it's important for us to contextualize that and to keep them on the side. What do you make of the various academic camps in terms of interpreting what's happening? I know you're not necessarily in agreement with Vali Nasra, an influential uh, analyst. He had an interested piece in Foreign Affairs, the war that remade the Middle East. Uh, do you think he's right? Or what's the problem with his analysis? Yeah, I think Vali Nasr is a great scholar. But reading his article earlier this morning coalesced for me a lot of the mistakes in, I guess, what you could call beltway thinking. People are either focused on the really, really long term or the really, really short term. And it's nice that we have some short term successes on a truce and hostage exchange and a few convoys of aid. And that's great. But neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians have showed me any strategic thinking about what comes next. And it may be that if you talk to more Israeli politicos, they really don't have anything that comes next. They have no solutions. Then you can get to some beltway thinkers who are like, aha, this is a moment to move from a two-state solution like this to a kind of one state. Or in the case of Vali Nasser, he doesn't just want to have a two-state solution. He wants to remake the entire map of the Middle East and to have a Saudi-led bloc where the Saudis have a deal with the Israelis, but the Saudis are the dominant security providers in the Middle East. And then they bring the Iranians in and America gives Saudi Arabia a 
security guarantee and gives them civilian nuclear and then mediates a kind of prima inter Paris status for Saudi to dominate the Gulf. And that is so long-term and pie in the sky. I think that that's missing low-hanging fruit. And one of the problems with the enduring disorder is people are not solving the medium-term win-win solutions like on things like taxation or sharing of resources. And, and, and I see that kind of mistaken thinking in Vali Nasser's approach. But you also hear very unrealistic stuff coming out of the White House, don't you, when Biden talks about the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, that's absurd. You know these, I don't know what these people are smoking, but it's certainly something. I don't know about it either. I, I think that literally Biden is taking plans off the shelf from the Clinton, Bill Clinton administration. <laughs> that's like literally he's so old. He, 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 he is just defaulting to the shit that he had heard then. And, and he's not even listening to the more recent stuff. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Neither of us are obviously are big fans of Donald Trump, but could, I mean, Trump would claim he could do a better job and he would promise, oh, if you put me in power, I'll solve this in five minutes. Of course, he wouldn't. But could he do a worse job than Biden? Yes. I think that overall, Biden is doing a good job balancing between the Israelis and the Palestinians, using his sympathizer in chief with Israel in the beginning and now sympathizing with Gazans. And he's rallying the West and unifying us, not only in Ukraine, but in other contexts. The problem is that he's not good at creative thinking. And Blinken, I think, is doing a lot of interesting shuttle diplomacy, just not much creative thinking. So Trump could be very destructive. Biden is not a destructive influence on the global stage. And, you know, to go back to your initial question, which we started this episode with, I do think that things look a little bit more ordered this week than last week, because there is a kind of continuity thinking. But it's going to unravel if there are not medium-term solutions. Medium-term solutions always sound like kicking the can down the road, but maybe you're right. I hope you're right, Jason. No, We're talking with Jason. Sorry, go on. Sorry. Just medium-term solutions isn't kicking the can down the road. I want to use a Northern Ireland analogy here that I think might resonate with you, Andrew. The Good Friday Agreement did not create peace in Northern Ireland. That's a myth. The Good Friday Agreement was the start of a process which allowed for mediated dialogue between Ulster Unionists and a range of Irish Republicans that then created an incentive structure which built benefits for both sides that eventually, after 10 years, culminated in something. So I think medium term is great because you can then begin to create incentive structures, which is what I see the Cutteries is potentially doing which benefits both sides and does trust building. Now, that might be a talking point from the Clinton White House, given that it was Bill Clinton who brought about that piece. We are talking with my old friend, uh, Jason Pack, the co-host of the Excellent Disorder podcast. Um, another excellent production publication is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, uh, uh, helping us bring this high quality content. Going to run a short feature on liberties and then we'll be back with jason to talk about how to make our disordered world a little more ordered uh so don't go away anyone beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion 
substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking uh, with Jason Pack, the co-host of the excellent Disorder podcast. It's uh, up to number 15, Jason, I hear. Uh, you're still behind yeah, me, of I course. Mean, we have a once-a-week format, and we've had to kind of put in a few bonus episodes given all the craziness in the Middle East, which is that, like this week, we talked about can there be a role for NATO in the Middle East? And then a very scary thought, could conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza and elsewhere be a detonator for U.S.-China tensions? So we inserted more episodes in there. And so even though we've only been running for two months, we're already close to 15. Very impressive. I was joking, of course. I would, uh, I'm not number 15, but uh, I don't have oh, no, no, resources you or your Sorry. team, Jason. Another step. Jason, before the break, you talked about the rise of what you called far-right new government in Argentina. You acknowledge you didn't know much about it, but also Wilders in the, who yeah. recently... I think it was yesterday or the day before, won the, the Dutch election, the largest party may not form a government. I wonder whether we need we analysts, we we people who, who, who claim at least to be objective, whether we need to drop this term far right. It seems to be a term now that gets used to describe anyone we don't like. I mean, I don't like Wilders, but uh, he's against Muslim immigration in Holland. Why does that make him far right? No, I agree. It's an outdated and stupid term. You know that the the use of the terms left-right go back to the way that people sat in the tennis court oath during the French Revolution and then in the Robespierre period. So it's a term from the uh, period of 1789 to 1791. People who wanted a greater role for the state in the economy sat on the left of that assembly and those who were more laissez-faire sat more on the right. So it doesn't make sense to have the idea that having a woke view is on the left and having a neo-populist, anti-immigrant, traditional marriage view is on the right. This has been an evolution of the way the term is used in the late 20th century to cultural issues, which doesn't make any sense. That's why I like the term neo-populist because they're not actually right wing in an economic sense. Frequently, these neo-populists wish to use the state to correct economic injustice. And, and sometimes they want to nationalize industry. You know what I mean? They can have certain quite left or statist ideas. Yeah, I, uh, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's rather like the way in which conservatives described every, or conservatives can you continue to describe everyone as neo-Marxist if they don't agree with them. I think we need to be a little bit more disciplined and analytical with our yep. terms. What do you make of the debate, Jason, in our intellectually disordered world over anti-Semitism? Keith Raboy, for example, now is tweeting or xing that it's time to recall the US ambassador to Ireland, Belgium and Spain, because I guess the Irish, the Belgians and the Spanish are somehow sympathetic to the Gazans, um, there seems to be an intensification of debate in which the center has been completely destroyed. What, what do you make of the supposed rise of anti-Semitism? 
Well, I think there are two things to unpack there, which is that there is a rise in anti-Semitism and there is a lack of nuance in our political debate. One of the features of the enduring disorder that I try to unpack on my podcast is the way in which the nature of communication in cyberspace and with X and other formats leads to, you know, a polarized filter bubble discussion and a conspiratorial discussion. And traditionally, when you've had conspiracy theories, a very common one is, well, the Jews control everything or the Jews as a group are, you know, to blame. And given the fact that there is a real Israeli overreaction and the Israelis have killed lots of Palestinian civilians, you can understand that people are pissed off. What's a shame is when this goes into bizarre anti-Semitism, like Elon Musk, the owner of the Twitter slash X platform, retweeted someone who put the great replacement theory that Jews are trying to dilute the white race by letting black and Hispanic migrants into America. And he said that that is the actual truth. And this to me is so absurd. There's no way that the wealthiest man on earth with access to tremendous information thinks that there's some kind of Jewish conspiracy to, you know, dilute the white race through immigration. But yet he tweets that absurd anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. So I think that there's a lot of um, growth in these these ideas. I mean, I'm interested in your thought, Andrew. Why do, why do wealthy people in power who know that that's not true say such things like this? Well, retweeting isn't saying. I, I, my own sense is there's a degree of hysteria. Um, no, but you, he, you, he, you wrote it is the actual truth. Well, whatever he says, who cares? Uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore um, wrote a very influential piece in The Atlantic, very controversial, but very authoritative on why Israel is not a colonial state. You reposted that, retweeted yeah. it. Um, why is this an important debate about whether or not Israel is a colonial state, Jason? It shouldn't be an important debate. But again, we live in this world with a toxic and polarized media environment. I think Israel does a lot of wrong stuff and they've you know, committed a lot of uh, human rights abuses and they probably have violated the law of war. But they're not neo-colonialist state because the problem with saying that Israel is neo-colonialist is it makes it sound like all the Jews who are there have no right to be there at all. They're all just colonizers and as much colonizers in Tel Aviv as in some outpost in the West Bank. That delegitimizes the right of any Jewish presence in the Holy Land. Do you know what I mean? And I think that that's, that is really unfair as well as not leading to any solutions. So, How influential do you think this is going to be, this supposed lack of U.S. consensus divisions um, within the elites, within the, the leading universities on Israel? You, you, you posted something about uh, America, whether it's been governed by a coherent elite consensus. At what point could it really enter politics? At what point is it conceivable, even in the next election, that a major candidate runs on a platform that suggests that America is unwise to make Israel such a close ally. Well, Vivek Ramaswamy is saying that. Um, I don't he, think he, he Yeah, he's not, he hasn't been chosen by the Republican Party. I, I know, of course. I was, I was saying so. But that's a position that wouldn't have been possible to even get to this stage 
20 years ago, you know, or 15 years ago. Um, I don't think it's that likely. And that's not what I was pointing out when I'm saying that we don't have a consensus political environment. It's that was a conversation I had with Tom Melanowski, who someone I really respect, former. Yeah, Congress he's been on our show too. Um, he had an interesting argument, which is that America has always been entirely riven by domestic feuds, not just the civil war and civil rights, but discussions about isolationism, you know, after Wilson's 14 points or, you know, McCarthyist issues about other things and that it, there was always just a war of all against all. And therefore, Trump is just the next iteration of that, whereas I see it as fundamentally different. And that's an interesting debate. And I think that your listeners might like that that episode that we did uh, last Tuesday of the Disorder Pod. For me, the reason this this is relevant is that debating, you know, is Israel the most moral army and the IDF is moral or is it a neo-colonial state is like a stupid debate about different oppositions, you know, and is there a Jewish conspiracy to control the media or not is like missing the point. We need much more nuance in our discussions. It shouldn't be a discussion about like Jewish space lasers on the one hand or you know, the Israelis are the most moral army on in the world on the other, because clearly both of those things are completely bogus propaganda points. Yeah, we had Mike Rothschild on the show talking about Jewish space lasers. What about the Chinese? You mentioned them earlier. Um, I know you on, on your Disorder podcast, you've discussed, you had a, a show about them. The Chinese must be loving this, mustn't they? I mean, it, it yeah. reflects America at its weakest at its most disordered, at its most ineffective. For, for, for the Chinese, this is a, is, a, is, a, is a good crisis, isn't it? I think so, particularly because it comes while they're in the throes of their ever grand real estate crisis and the Chinese economy is in a kind of free fall. But because we're so lost in Ukraine and Israel-Gaza, uh, you know, the attention is off them. And I'm of the belief that they are disorderers globally, and hence they don't want to resolve the conflict in Ukraine. They don't want the Russians to win, but they don't want the Ukrainians to win. They're happy for it to continue. And I don't think they care if the Israel-Gaza war concludes or doesn't conclude. It's worth pointing out, and I was speaking to a Chinese colleague uh, about this last week, and she told me, Traditionally, Chinese popular opinion has been mostly pro-Israel because there was a view that just as the Japanese wanted to extinguish the Chinese communities in Southeast Asia, in Singapore and Hong Kong and where elsewhere during World War II, they were, they, you know, the, the Japanese imperial authorities talked about the Chinese as the Jews of East Asia so that they had a popular sympathy for the Jews as a commercial people who are practical and then they tried to get genocided. But that, that that has really flipped, that the, the media discourse has changed in China, where now the Palestinians are clearly seen as the underdog and the oppressed. And Chinese media has really reframed its relationships as being more with the global south. And I think that this is an example whereby the conflicts like this really make the West not an appealing test case for our relationships in the global south. Jason, I just saw uh, Ridley Scott's new movie, Napoleon. Oh, tell me, how was it? Uh, I thought it was very good. My wife thought it was a little silly. It was probably both silly and good. But it does present Napoleon as 
to borrow some language of yours, an agent of disorder. And ultimately, of course, he was defeated by the Tsars, by, mm -hmm. by the Tsar of Russia, by Wellington, another conservative, the Duke of Wellington, an English, uh, English general. And of course, uh, the, 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 the Prussians who arrived late at Waterloo. You, you keep on mentioning disorder as if it's a bad thing. And for you, the Chinese are agents of disorder. The Iranians are agents of disorder. Hamas is agents of disorder. The good people are in favor of order, whether it's the Qataris or the Americans. Do you think there's a danger in terms of your analysis or your position on all this, that you're the conservative talking about the right-left distinction? Uh, I'm not suggesting you're radical right, because we've discussed that's a rather silly term. But uh, the, the right-left distinction that came out of the French Revolution that Napoleon was also produced by and, and, and tried to kind of straddle left and right in his military and political career. Do you think that supporters of order need to acknowledge the value of disorder? Well, this is a great question. And in a way, it gets at the nub of the issue of our first interview about my Boston Globe piece, I have become more Burkean over time as I've grown older. Do you know what I mean? I was a, like most college students, I was more on the left and more socialist in my tendencies and more happy to change traditional cultural norms. And now I'm in my mid forties and I do feel more comfortable with slower and more incremental change. I don't think that all ordering is good and all disordering bad. No, of course not. I think that what's different is we have major global states who promote disorder rather than alternative forms of order. And Napoleon was not a disorderer in my view. Absolutely what? not. Jay Absolutely not. He was, Napoleon was not a disorderer? Absolutely not. He had an alternative order. He wanted a, the dominance of the French state and he had the code civil and he wanted to reorder society. The very nature of the On Napoleonic his project. So he was a, colo I, I, I don't know whether you would call him a colonialist, but he certainly was someone seeking to conquer. Correct. Much of Europe and order. the old regimes with regimes sympathetic to him or with relatives. Correct, but that family. was an alternative order. It wasn't a disorder. And so what, what would differentiate Xi or even Putin from, from Napoleon? Well, I think Putin is very, very different than Napoleon. Putin doesn't have an economic or social order that he has ready to go to impose on Ukraine. There's no rule of Putinist economics. There's no Putin law code. Napoleon had a complete system. That's why so much of continental law from Denmark all the way to Germany derives from Napoleonic principles. Napoleon even ordered areas of Italy and Spain and presaged Italian unification. Again, it might have been a very brutal order, and I'm not apologizing for Napoleon, but you can't say that he wasn't an orderer. He was an orderer in the way that Stalin was an orderer. He had a system. Putin doesn't have a system. Hamas, there's no Hamasian governance for Israel. They don't have a plan to conquer Israel and like impose Sharia law on all of Israel in a coherent way. But, 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 but Putin is a supporter and an investor in what people call right-wing radical parties in Europe. I'm sure he was thrilled with Wilder's victory. Correct. He's Correct. close with Orban in Hungary. 
Uh, he has good relations with Maloney in, in Italy. Why isn't that a system? He would be more than happy if radical right-wing governments ruled every European capital. Great. And I will direct listeners to my book here, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, because this is the question that I pose in the con conclusion. Isn't far-right, ha-ha, neo-populism just an alternative form of order? And I argue that it isn't. That even though all these neo-populists, from Putin to Orban to Wilders to Bolsonaro or now Milley, even though they're willing to work with each other, they don't have a form of order because essentially what they wish to do is to disorder the terms of trade in the international system so that there is no order. They don't wish to solve climate change in an alternative way. They just don't have any solutions. They say, oh, there is no climate change or they don't want to solve the terms of trade. Oh, we'll put these tariff barriers up, but it's not a comprehensive system. And again, I'm very it's an anti-system system. We had John Gray on the show. I, I know you you're familiar with his work. He his new book is a re, is about a return to Hobbesian, if not anarchy, certainly disorder, which he doesn't necessarily celebrate, but suggests it, it is a reality. Aren't these semantic issues, Jason? Whether or I not think that they're an not order I mean, or a system, it's a reality. Uh, again, listeners and readers are very welcome to disagree with me, and I'm I'm extremely aware that what I postulate is not provable. It's a pundit's argument, but I think it is useful for us to contextualize the global system in a range of ways. We could do a left-right way. We can do an economic way. We can do a psychological way. But I think this ordering and disordering way of looking at things is one lens which will give us some insights. And I... I'm trying to contribute by using this lens and fleshing it out.